Welcome to the podcastry verb, where we talk about the world through the lens of language. I'm Alex Helberg, back with my co-host Calvin Pollock, and this week we're talking about politics, culture, and language and action. Calvin is a writer and editor who has worked for publications like the New York Times and the Washington Post. He's also the author of several books on language, including Being There, a memoir about language and time, and How to Be a Person Who Speaks When You Don't Know What You're Doing. This episode is all about how people use language to communicate ideas that aren't always directly related to what they're trying to say, and how that can sometimes be problematic. We'll talk about why it's important for us as citizens of this country to be able to read each other's minds when we're talking about politics or culture or any other topic related to words. Have questions? Let us know in the comments section below. This introduction was written by an artificial intelligence, using the prompt. Introduce and describe the podcastry, verb, which is about politics, culture, and language and action. Written from the perspective of the co-host, Alex Helberg. At the end, introduce co-host Calvin Pollock. We hope you have enjoyed this experiment. Goodbye. Welcome once again to Reverb. My name is Alex Helberg, and I'm joined on the mic, as always, by my co-host, co-producer, and good friend, Calvin Pollock. How's it going, Calvin? Doing good, Alex. How about you today? I am doing great, uh, and we are very excited today uh, to be joined by Dr. S. Scott Graham, an associate professor in the Department of Rhetoric and Writing at the University of Texas at Austin. He uses artificial intelligence and machine learning to study communication in bioscience and health policy with special attention to bioethics, conflicts of interest, and health AI. He is the author of many scholarly articles, chapters, and essays, as well as three books, The Politics of Pain Medicine, Where's the Rhetoric, and his latest, The Doctor and the Algorithm, Promise, Peril, and the Future of Health AI. Most recently, he published a terrific op-ed with Inside Higher Ed about artificial intelligence in college student writing, entitled AI-Generated Essays Are Nothing to Worry About, which will be the main subject of our conversation today. Scott, thank you so much for being with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Hi, Alex. Hi, Calvin. It's good to be here. Great. Good to have Great. you. Great to meet you. Uh, but before we really dive into our conversation, uh, I have a little surprise here that I haven't actually shared with uh, with Scott yet. Uh, I have another person who wants to introduce you here. Uh, let's see if we can get them on the record here. Scott Graham is one of the most celebrated scholars in the field of rhetoric and writing, but he's also <laughs> a guy who just wants to have fun. He's got a couple degrees from Harvard and Oxford where he studied with some of the biggest names in the field, and he's been awarded for his work by organizations like the National Endowment for the Humanities and the American Association for the Advancement of Science. This is all very impressive, but what really resonates with Scott is how much fun it is to use his knowledge to make people laugh. When he's not teaching or researching, Scott spends his time writing humor essays that poke fun at everything from academia to pop culture. His books are made up of essays like these, as well as more serious works on topics like race relations in America or how we can use our brains better. 
So, uh, uh, that's that... amazing. I love it. Can I put it on my uh, university bio tomorrow? <laughs> yes, yes, I will. I will send that right over to you. Uh, so, uh, for those of you listening who might not be quite understanding what just happened there, I thought it might be a little bit fun to run an AI writing software of the kind that that Scott has written about in his op-ed that we'll get into in just a minute to generate an introduction for him. I use the prompt: talk about the scholarly work of rhetoric and writing professor Scott Graham from the University of. Texas at Austin, written in third person, listing his credentials, book publications, and awards. So, Scott, our first question for you is, how much of that bio was true, and why do you think some of it was so far off? I mean, almost none of it, of course. Uh, <laughs> but, it, it, you know, it's really interesting. The AI, of course, has this problem that is uh, widely called hallucination, right? Especially these generative AIs where they essentially, quote unquote, hallucinate facts, and they're trained on huge data sets. You can tell that this particular algorithm has been fed a lot of bios, including academic bios. But I think we also heard some genre shift in there. So it's a little bit academic bio, but also like more public facing author bio blended together. And so I, I, that's what happens a lot. This is a textbook case of the kind of writing that these algorithms do right now. They hallucinate facts and they're pretty reliable representors of the genres they've been trained on, but not for very long, right? So there's a sudden pivot there in the middle of the bio where it switches from academic bio to public facing author bio, where it switches from scholar to humorist. And there's another term, yes. uh, in addition to hallucinations, catastrophic forgetting. And catastrophic forgetting is, is is what happens when the AI forgets what it's writing about two sentences or a paragraph in, mm. but it doesn't stop. It keeps going. So this seems textbook to me. Uh, I'm curious what model that was. Yeah, that was copy.ai. It was mainly designed for writing either ad copy or uh, social media, like brand uh, development uh. content. Uh, and I also put in there, I, I like that you pointed out the genre shift, uh, because specifically I put, I was experimenting with the different tones that you could write in. That was one of the features of this. And I chose witty for that one. I don't know mm. how explicitly witty that sounded. One of the other options on there was Elon Musk, and I did not want to go there. It's just, it would have been too no, crazy. Definitely don't want the robot version of the Elon Musk bio. Thank you for passing. <laughs> Absolutely. Not a problem. Yeah. So I, I think, Scott, we wanted to ask what sort of drew you to this area of research. And so, you know, now that we've heard that fake bio, tell us a little bit about your actual research bio that made you interested in these problems, both for writing and for rhetoric and public culture generally. Yeah, so I, you know, I'm a rhetorician of health and medicine mostly by training, though I'm kind of interdisciplinary in my orientation and my methods. So for a very long time, I've been interested in cutting edge medical science, the communication that happens in those environments, the writing that happens in those environments. And until recently, I was focused mainly on drug development. But AI, of course, has been offered as transformative for all sorts of different sectors, including the health sector. So the health sector has the largest amount of AI venture capital investment of any sector right now. It's an exploding area in exciting ways and in terrifying and dangerous ways. So in many ways, this was a natural evolution of the work that I've done previously to the latest topics of interest for medical development. 
But along the, the way, I've also found myself wanting to work with larger and larger data sets for my scholarship. And this has caused me not just to study AI as a rhetorical critic, but to start using AI to do my work. One of the quick ways that I use to describe it is I actually train reading robots now to look for salient rhetorical features. And the, the contrast I like to explain is a, an individual human rhetorical critic is really great at identifying a thousand things about one text. And the reading robots are really great about identifying one thing in 10,000 texts. And so that I, I look for the circulation of certain rhetorical patterns. So let me put a little traction on that. In the latest book, The Doctor and the Algorithm, I trained an AI to identify hype about AI in writing on health AI. So it's a little sarcastic, a little snarky there, but you know, I was really interested to see if we could find some patterns between hyperbolic language, over-exaggeration of the quality of health AI related to some of the underlying research methods. And so, so that's my scholarly hat. That's, that's what got me into AI. That's what made me want to learn about AI. And then all this generative tech starts coming out. And I'm still a writing instructor, even if I'm a strange interdisciplinary scholar. And so I really wanted to know how that plays out in the classroom. That's kind of a perfect transition for us here. You know, you were talking about not only using these methods for, you know, analyzing writing or maybe even producing writing ourselves, but also, you know, you mentioned training a, an algorithm to pick out features of the hype surrounding AI. We wanted to talk about a little bit of uh, uh, what would you call it, sort of like doomsday saying about mm. AI that seems to have really taken root, you know, especially over the last decade. But I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your four into or your knowledge about some of the more dystopian doom forecasting about AI, you know, not only why this is a broader public issue, but why it's become such an issue of controversy in the academy. Yeah, great question. And so I took cards on the table. I describe myself as AI cautiously optimistic, which is not a very popular position right now. There, there, it's really a polarized discourse these days between AI evangelists who can see no wrong and imagine what to them is a utopian future where we all live in the cloud and we we shed our corporeal bodies and ascend to a higher form. And then some people who are very concerned about the future of AI think it is going to collapse society. And these people have pointed to some real, serious, urgent, and pressing problems. So AI in sectors like predictive policing has been shown to reliably accelerate the racist effects of our contemporary policing system while blackboxing it. So while presenting it as some sort of scientific or mathematical objective finding, while it still distills longstanding inequitable patterns and reinforces them. You see some of that in some of the healthcare technologies as well. Unfortunately, our healthcare system is not equitable. And if you train a AI system to replicate what our current healthcare system does, it turns out it will replicate the inequity too. And so the concern about AI, the criticism about AI is coming from a very important place. It's coming from a place that recognizes real harms that are happening. And I do think there are dangers of AI accelerating some of the harms in the world that we need to be mindful of. That said, I also think that 
many of the criticisms of these AI technologies are essentially criticisms of racism, predatory capitalism, other forms of exclusion, ableism, transphobia, et cetera, et cetera. These are things that we're continuing to grapple with. We have grappled with for a long time. AI in some ways can make them faster. And so that makes AI dangerous. But AI is not the cause of most of these things. There's structural and socioeconomic conditions that predate the individual technologies. Absolutely. And I mean, specific to the higher ed portion of your work here, that one of those ills that has pre-existed AI technology is, of course, cheating, you know, plagiarism, passing, writing off as your own work when it's actually taken from another source. What is the current state of this sort of AI panic in higher ed in this day and age? Yeah, so there's been a lot of concern, quite obviously, that AI and generative AI and AI co-writing applications will allow students to rapidly generate their essays and allow them basically to opt out of the assignments that are required of them in their classes. And this is why I wanted to do an experiment in my class, and I wanted to set up the best case scenario for AI cheating. So I gave the students um, some really guided instruction on how to use these AIs well, how to co-write with them. I created the assignment that allowed them to do significant revision, to look for these AI hallucinations and correct them. Again, this was the best case scenario for AI cheating. And in the end, I think it showed that it is way too much work at least right now, to cheat with AI. It's going to be far easier, far faster to purchase an essay, to pay a friend, to download something. The students, in addition to the essay writing experiment, I had them write a short reflection on their experience, and they hated it. They hated it so much. I can't even tell you. It took way longer than it would just to have written the essay the normal way. Many of them were very frustrated that the essay they were handing in was not as the quality that they could have produced if they hadn't been held back by the AI writing assistant. And so I can't guarantee what technologies are around the corner, but I think for the short run, at least, we're not looking at massive amounts of AI cheating. It's just too hard. And they're just, people are gonna cheat to get a better grade, or to avoid doing the work. So AI doesn't currently solve either of those problems for them. Right. One of the things that I found really compelling about your Inside Higher Ed article about this was that was that you talked about assignment design and like good writing pedagogy that that we've known about for a long time that assignments that are very well scaffolded, that are clear, that are very directed that often that have real audiences, that have local rhetorical contexts that inform them, that all of that helps thwart this kind of AI-based cheating in the same way that it helps thwart other kinds of cheating. So I wonder if you could talk about like assignment design. Yeah. And I think localization is the key and localization, I mean, to the classroom context, but also potentially to the university, to the city, that that helps a lot. But I guess to step back a little bit, I'm I'm no longer the youngest faculty member out there as much as I hate to admit it. But when I first started teaching writing, the threat that was most common discussed was literally the filing cabinets full of essays in fraternities. 
right? So that you would go to a fraternity and you would pay someone there to open the filing cabinet for English 101 and to get an essay that you would then copy and put your name on, right? And the same strategies that I learned then and that I've developed since then to prevent that kind of academic misconduct are the same strategies that work for AI. Because of those catastrophic forgetting issues, because of those hallucination issues, the AIs cannot consistently write about an assigned topic, especially in a local context. So in the same way that the sample you provided at the beginning was inventing a history for me at Harvard, or I wish I was as funny as that AI said I was in my writing, but right in the same way that it's inventing those things, the student essays we're inventing facts about the University of Texas, we're inventing fake student organizations, we're inventing fake professors, or they were remembering from wrong time frames. So a lot of students were writing about student fees or, or the cost of housing in Austin, which is a serious issue. And the AI would pull up a fact from 1987 and say, $200 a month is too expensive for housing in Austin. And my students would love $200 a month, right? Nothing is anywhere close to that. So, so these are the kind of things that the localization of the assignment, the putting it in the classroom context, the specific parameters right now, at least. And I think for quite some time, they're going to keep working to address AI assisted cheating. Absolutely. I mean, you mentioned localization. One of the other things that I wanted to pick up on, uh, what you had said about the kind of genre shifting that you saw the AI going through as well. I wonder how how you think we should be considering genre, like how you know we can sort of work uh, an understanding of genre into our pedagogy as we're designing these assignments. Yeah, I'm glad you asked this question. I'm just optimistic about how we might be able to use some of these models to improve writing instruction. We have this gap where students write what they write and it goes to us. And depending on how many classes we have and how many students we have and how precarious our academic employment is, it takes days to a month to return that feedback. So if students have explored a genre, tried to inhabit a genre, and then some weeks later with all sorts of other coursework intervening, they hear that they didn't quite make it. I'm worried that the ability to capitalize on that and to learn the genre conventions are somewhat lost. And so what I like about these AI systems is they're very responsive to genre specifically. I think that's what they learn better than facts or anything else. And so in a carefully guided classroom environment, I think there's a lot of potential for having students craft sentences or multiple sentences, feed it to the system. And the extent to which the system immediately puts back words in the right genre or the wrong genre is a sort of immediate feedback about if their writing is fitting the genre conventions. And so, you know, I had students that would put what they thought were great first lines and may have worked really well as the hook of an essay. But then the, the system would basically put back a personal blog post, like the diction wasn't formal enough for an academic essay. And then I had other students who would see that problem, and then they would try to put basically as many million-dollar synonyms in the sentence as they could, and then they would get something that felt like a, a high-theory humanist scholarly essay, and that wasn't what we were shooting for either. 
we were shooting for something for public consumption that's formal enough, but not academically rigid. And so having to bounce back and forth between different prompts and immediately see the AI put back something that was right or wrong, that was higher or lower register, I think was a really useful exercise as they thought about how to craft their own sentences. Yeah, I, I was just going to say, I, I think that that's really kind of fascinating because because I do think that actually like genre based pedagogy is I mean, that's the way that I teach in my writing classes. And a lot of times, you know, students have to kind of like appropriate discourse moves that they see out in the wild. I mean, that's kind of how language acquisition works to a degree. I was reminded just of a, a way that students almost kind of reverse engineer this uh, because one of the current topics du jour of assessment in writing is that a lot of essays are graded by AI when it comes to certain essays, like I believe the TOEFL to some degree is scored by a machine. One of the things I actually had learned from some students when I was teaching a class of mostly uh, students who uh, for whom English was their second language or they were learning uh, English as a second language, that they had learned about like like a lot of the kind of like common mistakes that I was noticing in their prose or things that were not mistakes per se, but just like writing these sort of like long sentences with stacked prepositional phrases that were just immensely complex. They would tell me, well, that's the kind of writing that the TOEFL likes is, is writing that is like super, super complex. So like students are kind of doing this stuff automatically. They are, I, I just thought that was kind of an interesting example of the sort of like reverse osmosis that students are using sometimes. Yeah. And I do think that that's an important danger, right? Because these these systems, because they're pattern recognizers, can be prone to gamifying them in not the best ways, right? So I, I do think there's some like gamification benefits to something like the prompt crafting in order to get immediate genre feedback. But if we have assessment systems, for example, that are built around this, then it can lead to, you know, where the measure becomes the outcome. And, and that creates some really bad effects. Uh, one example I have would, was actually the first experience I ever had with AI-based academic misconduct. I had a group of students who were, I don't know if they were writing the essays or downloading the essays in a language other than English, and then using AI-based translation to submit their final essay. And the, the, these were also a group of computer science majors, and they they were recognizing some of the, some of the ability of what they had perhaps taken to flag Turnitin scores, things like that. I don't use Turnitin. I think there's too many false positives, but that's the environment they were used to thinking in. And um, some of the students had actually built a, a computer program that was an automated synonym substitutor to help like spoof the, the plagiarism detection AI. And you know, obviously this misses the point in a lot of ways and it, it like damages the pedagogy and it it also wasn't effective. The the one I'll, I'll always remember is uh, a, an essay where uh, students had were writing about some subsistence level community and saying that all of the home heating in this community was based on uh, in-home burning of woodwind instruments. And so I've got this image of people throwing clarinets and bassoons on the fire in order to keep warm. And, you know, I assume some sort of lumber or reed or uh, like bamboo term when translated through the other language and the synonym substitution became woodwind instruments. But, you know, this is the kind of outcome we get when we overly gamify or when the AIs aren't trained on a broad enough set or being used for a bad outcome. I can't believe they would do that kind of harm to as as someone who played saxophone uh, in <laughs> high school. That's that's a personal affront to me. 
Scott, I just had one last question. And then Alex, if you have more, can you can take it from here. But I have a slightly broader question because I'm always trying to think about how issues of writing pedagogy and rhetoric like apply to broader political spheres and public spheres. And what I'm concerned about is, you know, what are the risks for spoofing writing in other contexts where like authentic writing is really important? Let's say like on the job market when recommendations or cover letters were really like we're sort of evaluating them as a proxy for an actual person's like truthful abilities or skills or or qualities. I'm thinking about legal contexts where like written documents are so important for their authenticity. Do you have concerns about that or do you think the models are just too shitty still at this yeah. point to that for uh, that to be a real concern? I, I do. I mean, I, I don't have immediate concerns about that. But one of the other things to step back is I think we've got real social disagreements about what authenticity in writing means. Right. So writing scholars have spent a long time thinking about writing as a social process, thinking about um, cultural semiosis, right? The exchange of information through communicative medium, the, the bricolage of writing. And so I think we have folks in our discipline often have just less of an investment in the idea that writing can be thought of to represent some sort of authentic self. And, but we, that's, that is your point is very well taken that that's not shared. And there may be people in evaluative positions who have a very different sense of what the role of writing should be. And I think this is going to be what drives the conversation uh, for the near future is that disagreement, but us not talking about this disagreement. Like we're going to skip that underlying disagreement about the philosophy of writing and just talk about whether the AI is okay or not. And that's not great. But for now, one thing I really noticed from my exercise in class is the best writers did the best, right? If you're a really good writer, you're a really good reviser, and that's what it what it needs, right? So right now, these are mainly being marketed as like shitty first draft generators, and that's what they are. And you can't send in a job application that's a shitty first draft. You have to revise it enough that it will then be in your authentic voice and it will represent who you are. So for now, I'm less concerned. And I think for the foreseeable future, we're looking at paragraph level writing. We're looking at some shitty first draft generation. I don't think people are going to be able to whole cloth produce cover letters uh, even. And maybe if they are, that's just like producing a cover letter that you stole or that you bought, right? When it's interview time, you're not going to be able to stand up and represent that. So I'm not super concerned right now, but you point to a really important philosophical issue that is not resolved and doesn't have consensus. Yeah, no, I, I I really do appreciate that that you're you know referencing that larger sort of debate in retcomp scholarship because I really do think that it's bleeding into the public in a way that scholars twenty years ago maybe never you know couldn't have foreseen that it would, and I mean it is really interesting that it kind of it comes down to these situations where you know the rubber is going to hit the road eventually. You're going to have to 
talk to somebody face to face eventually about your cover letter materials. But, you know, I'm thinking about, you know, in cases like, you know, people getting catfished online or something like that by not only a profile that's been generated by a bot who, you know, has the a face that was taken from this person doesn't exist dot com and all of their stuff is generated by, you know, by Jasper or copy.ai or one of these other softwares. But again, you know, I think at, the, at that point, we are also distinguishing between like, what are the stakes of this writing situation, right? Yeah, I think that's right. And I also, I, I maybe also have a little bit more trouble with the cover letter resume situation, because how much AI is being unethically used to evaluate those submissions, right? So we have these very predatory resume and cover letter evaluators that have been shown over and over again to have essentially racist outcomes, gendered outcomes. They end up making proxy decisions based on how male Anglo a name is for interview recommendations or other markers of ethnicity, gender, et cetera. And so in that context, I don't know how much I could blame individual applicants, you know, fight algorithms with algorithms, I guess. Right. It's it's hard to say that you have a risk if the company you're applying to has a history of that kind of problematic behavior. I'm not sure you owe them a whole lot in terms of giving them your authentic self. It did make me think of I have students who 100 percent like plan for the this comes back to like gamifying for the algorithm 100 percent plan for resume scanning software that, you know, that lots of employers use and make sure that certain keywords are on the resume, right? And it's just such a bummer that they have to do that, you know? I like I understand there's there's some value for companies in kind of weeding things out, but it seems to really work at cross purposes to what what these genres should do in an ideal world. And also I think there there are even like file type problems with that as well. Like some students who submit PDF versions like are not getting scanned as well by those those softwares so it's just like the way that ai and and software is being employed by these institutions to kind of really render things so superficial uh, you know i have a lot of concern about that yeah i think in in those cases and this is why the folks in critical algorithm studies are so concerned and why i'm very sympathetic to those concerns in a lot of spaces that because of the design of these algorithms you see them consistently the benefits accruing to the already privileged members of society so in terms of the ai weights for example privileging certain names over other names that happens but also in terms of you having access to the technological literacy the infrastructures the training necessary to know that you should put all the keywords in white text on your resume right that that is going to be advice you get in a fairly privileged environment where the career services is very cognizant of how the AIs are working. Uh, and so I think this is where you see some of these systems accelerating marginalization, further uplifting the privileged. And we do need to think, even though I describe myself as AI cautiously optimistic, we need to think seriously as a society about how we're going to prevent these harms. And uh, you know, I'm also, even though I'm cautiously optimistic, not on the side that company self-regulation, company self-governance is generally going to get us there. 
And I think that's as good a call to action to end us on as any. So thank you once again, S. Scott Graham, for being with us here. The latest book just came out this fall called The Doctor and the Algorithm, Promise, Peril, and the Future of Health AI. Scott, before we say goodbye, is there anything else that you wanted to uh, plug on the show? No, that's great. Thanks for having me, Alex. Thanks, Calvin. It was great to talk to you both. Likewise. Yeah, yeah thanks for being here. And we'll tag your Twitter uh, when, we, Perfect. when we post the episode. And really excited to talk to you more in the future on online and offline. All right. Well, from all of us here at Reverb, thank you very much for joining us today. We will talk to you next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye, everyone. Thanks, folks. Our show today was produced by Alex Helberg and Calvin Pollock, with editing work by Alex. Reverb's co-producers at large are Sophie Wadzak and Ben Williams. You can subscribe to Reverb and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Android, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Check out our website at www.reverbcast.com. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, where our handle is at ReverbCast. That's R-E-V-E-R-B underscore C-A-S-T. If you've enjoyed our show and want to help amplify more of our public scholarship work, please consider leaving us a five-star review on your podcast platform of choice and tell a friend about us. We sincerely appreciate the support of our listeners. Thanks so much for tuning in.